You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. All the really great sex news, all the big stories seem to break just as I'm about to go on vacation, and then I won't be here for the aftermath, for the follow-up, for the controversy, for the celebrations, because... Coming now really is the Pokemon Go of Teledildonics. It's coming down the pike from a company called CamSoda.com, which seems an odd name for a sex toy company, Cam Soda. I don't get it. But PC Magazine reports that you can now have VR sex with real people thanks to this company, CamSoda. And they've created a product that allows people to have the sex with people who are not they're in the room with them. And how does this all work? PC Magazine reports, as Cam Soda explained in a news release, the new experience relies on a male and female synced wearable that passes pressure data from the female toy to the male sleeve. Seems kind of gendered, seems kind of invested in the gender binary, but here we are. The sex toys are coming, the VR sex toys. I have to admit, though, that I found the video that Cam Soda put out just a little bit misleading because all of the super hot, super sexy ladies that want to have VR sex with me right now are wearing virtual reality goggles, which, when you see the product demonstrated, don't seem to have anything to do with the product or its functionality. What is teledildonics? Multiple sensors feel pressure and relay it to the sleeve over the internet. Vibrator gets feedback from the sleeve regarding speed and intensity. Sleeve tightens based on pressure it feels on vibrator. If I may translate for you, it's a vibrator that she can put in her and it's a trash can that he can put his dick in and whatever pressure she puts on the vibrator with either her vaginal walls or her fist wrapped around it will then relay a signal to the kind of souped up fleshlight that his dick is shoved in. It will relay signals that will create pressure up and down his shaft. It seems pretty steampunky in the VR world. It seems pretty low tech. You're not going to see the other person. You're not going to be in the room with the other person virtually or in any other way. It's just if they put a little pressure on the female toy, the vibrator, which is not just a female toy. It will relay pressure to the dick that's shoved in the male toy on the other side of the world. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I'm very excited about the future of sex and technology, the merging of sex and technology. We now are on perhaps the second generation of people who came to age, or maybe even the third generation of people who came to age at a time when your first erotic experiences tend to be solo and involve technology in a really intimate way, your computer, your phone. The ways in which people now interact with technology, it's no surprise that I think in the future technology itself will become eroticized, that our gadgets are really going to be a stepping stone intellectually, emotionally, to the coming of the sex robots, the coming of souped up super gadgets. And maybe what Cam Soda here is pumping out with their slightly misleading video with all the hot ladies in it wearing VR goggles and their slightly misleading press release 
is just a precursor to all the amazing sex tech goodies that will be coming our way and that we will be coming in the way of down the road. Seems a bit of an overstatement to me to describe this as we can now have VR sex with real people. There have been other toys like this where someone could remotely zap your dick or zap your clit with electrodes and a keyboard. So we've had this kind of pass-a-zap back-and-forth technology in the past. So Cam Soda's product, which, and I'm quoting now, passes pressure data from the female toy to the male sleeve, ain't nothing. I think we got better coming our way in the future. And I think maybe this particular toy at this particular moment, even now, is overhyped. But we have a bright future of sex and tech merging and sex toys and better technology merging and the coming of the sex bots down the road. Maybe when I get back from vacation, it'll all have happened. Speaking of vacation, I am out for the next three weeks. We have shows, tons of questions, tons of guests. All of that is done. But at the top of every show for the next three weeks, an experiment for us, something new. We're going to have guest ranters to do the opening of the show for me in my absence. I'm sure you'll enjoy them. They're great people. We lined up some in my absence. So I'm out. I hope all of you are having a great summer. And I'll be back with you end of August with a brand new show, all me, me ranting. All right, today coming up on the show, tons of your questions, tons of calls, and on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, we have Ira Madison III from MTV here to talk about lust, sex, desire, race, and racism. That's on the magnum on today's show. Uh, hi, Dan. 26 years old from Canada, and I got a question about virginity. So, me, myself, I'm very much not a virgin. I like to consider myself a little bit on the varsity side. However, I just met somebody, and things are going great between me and her. Uh, but I suspect she's a virgin. So, she's 27 years old. I can really see something there. We've been on tons of dates. We've been seeing each other for about a month and a half now. Here's the problem. Our schedules conflict, so it's really hard to find that alone time. So I haven't actually had a, a real opportunity to find out if she was a virgin the old-fashioned way. I also don't know how to ask her outright without offending her. The reason I believe she's a virgin is because she confessed that her first kiss was this year. She's had a very busy life since she's graduated school, grew up sheltered. The reason I'm calling in is because going forward, I'm thinking... I don't know if me and her will be compatible once the bedroom action starts to pick up. And I don't know if I'm the right person to teach her because I don't think I'll be patient enough once that stuff does start. Uh, it's been easy so far because we haven't had much time to really, you know, fool around or do anything like that, but it will happen. And when it happens, I'm going to ask, I'll be facing a pretty big question. So I guess what I'm asking for, or what I'm asking is, am I an asshole for saying no to this amazing person, great girl, everything else fits, but I don't really want to try to teach her about her own sexuality and find out if she is a right fit for me? Should I go forward and maybe I'll get lucky with her? Uh, Give me some some general guidelines here, Dan. Are you an asshole? I I don't know if you're an asshole, and this may not be germane to your general level of assholery. All of us are assholes to some extent. It's just some people reach an asshole tipping point where they tip from a little bit of assholery around the edges, which we all have to just fucking asshole. I don't know if you're an asshole. I don't know you well enough. 
What I find odd about your call and the way you frame this question, and it's not just you who frames this particular question this way, is this concept of the virgin as some kind of marauding, flesh-eating, crazed, brainless zombie. The way people talk about virgins and getting involved with virgins is like, do I dare date this flesh-eating zombie who might chew my face off? As if virgins are extras on The Walking Dead and they can really fuck up the life of a non-virgin somehow. That if you get bit by a virgin, it's going to ruin everything. Some people who are virgins are very in touch with their body, very in touch with their sexualities, know broadly who they are and know in a general way what they might like and what they might like to experience or explore, which is can be said also of people who aren't virgins, that hopefully someone who's not a virgin knows broadly who they are sexually and knows generally what it is that they like to do in the sack. And your concern about risking being intimate with this person because you're not sure if you're going to find out if she's a right fit for you. Finding out if someone is the right fit for you is a problem or a hurdle that you have to overcome, even if that person's fucked 8 million people. If that person's not a virgin, and not a virgin in a spectacular Guinness World Records kind of way, you still might not be the right fit for each other. It's not like other people break someone in for you and then they're a good fit for you. Someone can be very experienced and a poor fit for you. Someone can have very little experience or no sexual experience and be a perfect fit for you. There's only one way to find out, and that's to fuck that person or to be intimate with that person or roll around with that person or give that person a chance. And what you're saying is because this person is a virgin, may not deserve a chance. A chance giving this person a chance is too risky. But if this person had had 10 other sex partners before you, Maybe you'd give them a chance, even though that person could still not be the right fit for you. And there's, again, only one way to find out, which is to crawl into bed with that person and see. You like her. You get along great. You are attracted to her. You enjoy spending time with her. If there wasn't a logistics problem here, if there weren't these conflicting schedules, you may have already gotten with her or been intimate with her in some way. I say go for it. I say make the time. And of course, the best way to find out if someone's a virgin is to ask them. And it shouldn't be a disqualifier. Even if someone's a virgin at 26 or 27, that is the far end of the virgin bell curve. But it is not unheard of. And people who lose their virginities later are not necessarily damaged goods or incapable of catching a groove or bad at it. We have all those of us who are experienced, been to bed with very experienced people who are bad at it, who have lots of experience and are terrible, despite all that experience, terrible in the sack. And the reverse is true, too. You sometimes find yourself in bed with someone who has zero experience or very little experience, and they are just fucking good at it. They have an innate skill, or you just, the two of you click, sexually, chemically, whatever, and it works. But you'll never find out whether you two click and whether it works chemically and sexually. If you don't, give this woman a chance, which requires you not to disqualify her based on your assumptions about her virginity and your assumptions about virginity itself and what it means and what it symbolizes. Hi, Dan. My name is Jess, and I am a 27-year-old bisexual female. 
I'm calling because I am in a long-distance relationship with a man that I am deeply in love with. Our relationship is amazing. Our sex life is amazing. But with the long distance, um, I find myself wanting more attention from him since I don't see him as often. He has a very demanding job and works sometimes 10-hour days. So how can I talk to him and tell him that I need some more attention without sounding like a needy cunt. I'm not a needy person. I'm not a jealous person. But I just need him to make me feel special. Um, Is this a case of DTMFA? Or is it something that can be fixed? I have to say, I'm just going to confess, I'm going to put this right out there, that I had a negative kind of reaction listening to your call, which is all about my biases around being the busy person, because I work 10, 12, 14 hour days frequently, and I am grateful to have a partner who doesn't require my constant attention and constant reaffirming of my affections for him, that that can come in bursts, sometimes literally come in bursts, and that will satiate him and make him feel secure and loved. But he doesn't require a steady string of text messages all day, and he doesn't require me to get on the phone and talk to him for hours and hours and hours at night if we're separated or away from each other for a while. And I appreciate that about him because if my husband was one more goddamn thing I had to get done every day, If my husband was my fourth job, that would disincentivize the whole you're my husband thing. I'm glad that we can relax, enjoy each other, and not put unreasonable demands upon each other for focus or attention at times in our lives when we're busy and stressed. Sounds like your boyfriend right now is at a time in his life where he is busy and stressed. Sounds like, I'm just by inference here, When you two were together before this was an LDR thing, he was able to lavish you with the time and attention and focus and strokes and uh ahas and whatever else you needed in a way that completely satiated your need for attention from your romantic partner. And so this isn't a matter of him not having it in him to lavish you with that kind of attention or not a desire to lavish you with that kind of attention, but just logistically right now he can't lavish you with that kind of attention. He can't pour that chocolate all over your Sunday for you right now because he's away and he's working and he's fucking busy. So what do you do? I think you take a break. I think you let him off the hook. I think you acknowledge that for the moment he can't be the boyfriend that you need him to be or the kind of boyfriend you need a man who's your boyfriend to be. And so instead of having an LDR have a time out. Get back together, if indeed you're both still single, a year or two into the future, when he moves back or you move to where he is or you move to a new city together or whatever. Because presumably this LDR thing, the long-distance relationship thing, has a sunset clause. There's a window. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's a point at which you guys are circling back together. And rather than him sweating through 
these long days of this internship, this job, this gig, this PhD program, this med school, whatever the fuck he's up doing, worrying that he's not giving you what you need, that he's not doing his third job well enough, that he might get fired just before it gets toxic, before you start being angry and he starts feeling inadequate, before you poison the well. Just call it, not off, call a hold. Hit the pause button. Just let it go. Let him go. Be single for now and self-sufficient for now. Hi, man. Uh, 26-year-old straight female, and I have a question about hookup etiquette. So a couple weekends ago, I went out with some friends and mutual friends and ended up kind of hooking up with a guy that I wasn't particularly interested in, but we were drinking. I'm kind of getting over someone, and I'm in a new town, and it just kind of happened. He went down on me, and then we went to sleep and woke up the next morning, and he said that he didn't remember anything. And then he texted a friend of ours saying, and he was asking if, if I could talk to her about what happened, um, and says he, he was really drunk, he doesn't remember. Am I obligated to tell him, like, I remember what happened. Am I obligated to tell him what happened, or can I just never mention it because I'm kind of embarrassed about it? Your question has kicked up a lot of controversy here at Savage Love HQ, and we're having some long, drawn-out arguments about the gendered politics of this, or the sexual politics of this, because if the genders were reversed, if you were a man and the person who had performed oral sex on you was a woman who was blackout drunk at the time and the next day couldn't remember anything and was calling friends, calling around and asking other people, not you, what happened that night, there is a way, there is a, a certain way that I would be expected to frame that, unpack that, there would be a certain approach that I would be obligated to take. But because the genders are reversed and gender is a powerful thing and sexual violence and pressures and the zap put on woman's head versus the zap put on men's head and what's potentially traumatizing to a woman that isn't necessarily potentially traumatizing to a man, all that's very different. But still, I just every time I think about trying to answer your question, I just think, there's a way I would answer this question if you were a man and the person who was blackout drunk who performed oral sex on you as a woman. And I'm not going to answer your question necessarily in that way because the genders are reversed. And is that fair? And is this something that we are required to be absolutely fair about? Does it not make any difference depending on who's in what role gender-wise in a moment like this and in an interaction like this? I just kind of, kind of want to like step aside and toss it to the listeners and say, what do you guys think, 206-302-2064? But to answer your question, caller, what should you do? I think you should call the dude. I think you should tell the dude what happened. I have this hunch that the dude isn't asking you what happened that night because the dude is worried that – you may feel violated or traumatized by what happened that night, that something sexual happened that night and he was too drunk to know what the fuck he was doing or to remember what the fuck happened. And I think his primary worry may be that something happened that left you feeling terrible or violated or raped or traumatized and that he's afraid to approach you. 
for fear of what he's going to hear from you or for fear of re-traumatizing you or re-triggering you or traumatizing you himself if he approaches you because he thinks it might have been a terrible, awful experience for you because he doesn't remember what the fuck happened because he was blackout drunk. So rather than asking you, he's asking around because if it was a traumatizing experience for you, if he did something while he was blacked out that he wouldn't have done, if he wasn't blacked out that he regrets, that he was unwelcome or not consensual, maybe you would have confided in some mutual friends about that. And so that's why he's sussing those people out instead of going right to you. So calling him may be letting him off the hook. It may be a relief to him. To hear from you that what went down that night was him on you and that was fine with you and he didn't behave in a way that wasn't welcome and wasn't consensual and you feel bad now knowing that he was blackout drunk at the time and can't remember what happened because you, I assume, as a good and ethical and smart and sensitive person, don't want to be having sex with people who are incapacitated by alcohol. Not drunk, not tipsy, not had a drop, not had a beer or two, but incapacitated. The problem with blackout drunk is you can't always tell who's fucking incapacitated. People say blackout drunk and they picture someone who's passed out on a couch with vomit rolling out of their mouths and can't stand up and has to be carried. No, <laughs> those of us from alcoholic families, we've seen blackout drunks. And a blackout drunk can seem, in some cases, almost fucking so not sober, but functional and capable of consenting to an argument, dinner, sex, whatever. So again, the, the, the sexual politics and the gendered politics of your question are highly, hugely problematic. And this is a minefield I feel like I'm tiptoeing through. And I'm going to hear from guys who feel like, and maybe they're right that if you were a dude calling this question, I would light into you about the monster that you are for taking advantage of this poor blacked out girl. But because you're a girl and he went down on you and men are always the default sexual aggressors and never the victims, although men are, of course, objects sometimes of sexual aggression and sometimes also victims, I'm going to go easy on you. But you asked me what you should do and you should call the dude and you should tell him what happened and let him off the hook. Because if he is at all good and decent and kind, I expect that what he's most concerned about is not your behavior that night, but his behavior that night. Finding out from you that if anyone did something wrong that night, it might have been you, will come as a relief to him. Hey, Dan. Uh, I'm a 28-year-old trans man living in Boston. I have a question for you about a friendship relationship. So about five or six years ago, I was in college and I met this cis guy while I was still female-bodied. And he and I got along so fucking great. We were best friends. We hung out all the time. And in the last five years, I transitioned. So now I look like a man and I'm very open about this like it's all over my Facebook and he and I are friends on Facebook and I imagine that he's seen it I wasn't living around him for the last five years and now that he and I are back in the same part of the states I've reached out to him a few times to try to hang out and he'll say things like yeah dude let's hang out and then never get back to me um he was supposed to come into town 
last week, and they said he was going to call me to hang out, and he didn't. So my question is this. I don't know. Oh, wait, I should also tell you that while we were in college together, I gave him a blue job. So that might also complicate things for him and his brain. My question is this. So I really miss this guy. And I don't know if it's because I look really different. Maybe he's kind of like skeezed out that a trans person gave him a blow job. He's from the middle of nowhere, Maine. I, 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 I say that because he, he's never met people that aren't like him before. And, and like that was apparent during our whole friendship. I don't want to apologize for being trans or being weird. And I'm not sure if I'm overthinking it. Maybe he's just busy. Maybe he forgot to call or maybe he is squicked out. I can't hunt down your friend, pry open his skull and dig around in his gray matter until I come up with the answer and then bring that back to you. This is something that you can't really know if he's not willing to meet up with you or communicate with you in a real way or talk to you. You don't know why he doesn't want to hang out with you now or doesn't have time to hang out with you now. Maybe he has a problem with the trans thing. Maybe that makes him uncomfortable. Maybe he's never met a trans person before and that's it. Or maybe he's super busy and it's just not fitting into his schedule right now and he's got a full life and a lot of friends. And they're just not, there's no more friendship bandwidth available to you at this time. Or maybe, hey, maybe you gave lousy head in college and he carries a grudge. Who knows? You don't know. I don't know. And there is no way to know. Sometimes you just have to shrug it off and think maybe it's me, maybe it's him, maybe it's life and go out there and make other friends. Every once in a while, if you feel so inclined, you can send out a feeler. You can say, hey, I'm going to be here or there or we should hang out sometime. And if he never takes you up on it, there's your answer. He doesn't want to hang out with you. You can waste a lot of time and mental energy and emotional energy obsessing about why it is he might not want to hang out with you now. And maybe it's the obvious thing. Maybe it's the trans thing, or maybe it has nothing to do with the trans thing. But again, you can't know, go hang out with people who have time for you, who like you, who accept you right now. He doesn't have time for you. We don't know whether he dislikes you or can't accept you instead of focusing on the possibility that he's transphobic or the possibility that he dislikes you for some other reason and recriminating yourself about that or feeling bad about yourself because of these assumptions you're making about his attitude toward you. Just focus on the first thing. Doesn't have the time right now to hang out with you. Go find people who have the time right now to hang out with you and be with them instead rather than obsessing about why this person won't hang out with you or can't hang out with you right now. Hey, Dan, I'm a 20-something from Seattle, and I was just calling to ask you a question about this summer's wedding season. So I was invited to a wedding in Texas by an old friend the same weekend that I was invited to a gal's weekend away at the beach, um, and my friend who's getting married is kind of from a previous time in my life, um, a more religious time where um, when I left the church, I also kind of left a lot of those relationships. Um, And she and I, of course, were best friends at the time and 
have kind of maintained, but kind of not really, as uh, our opinions continue to polarize. But I know that if I don't attend her wedding, then it will be a great kind of nail in the coffin of a friendship that's already, let's be honest, dead. Um, We have not maintained very well, and I take half responsibility for that, but I know that I'll get full responsibility if I don't go to her wedding. Um, The wedding's not going to be great for me. It's a lot of people from that time in my life, um, a lot of people who believe a lot of different things than I do, and I don't think that it's necessarily the best space for me, Um, but especially when I could be sipping margaritas by the beach the same time. So I'd just be curious about your thoughts on wedding obligation. Send a gift, go drink those margaritas, and don't worry about the end of a friendship that you aren't invested in anymore. These are people who are really out of your life. You shouldn't be stressing about this. And let's think for a second or let's examine for a second why you might be stressing about this. Because not going to the wedding is going to create in your former friend's mind an accurate representation of the current state of your non-friendship. That she's going to figure out what you already know. That your friendship is essentially over. You would be creating a false impression by actually showing the fuck up. You would be creating an accurate impression by sending your warm wishes and kind regards because presumably you do have some fond memories of this relationship even if you don't want to be in this relationship anymore. So send a card. Pick something off their wedding registry if you feel so inclined. Mail them a gift. Go drink margaritas on the beach with your current and actual friends. Hi, Dan and the sex savvy at risk youth. So I was having sex with a dude the other day, a friend that I have had sex with a number of times. And I was on top and I finished and I know he likes to come in my mouth. So I hopped off um, and started sucking his dick and he finished in my mouth. Fast forward two days later, I was peeing and I had a total Broad City moment. I peed out the condom. I was so freaked out. I like panicked. It was insane having a condom fall out of me that I did not know was up there because um, I thought he pulled it off when I did the dismount. So I texted him. I was like, what the hell? He said, I thought you took it off. And I was like, I thought you took it off. Anyways, I freaked out. I got the day after pill, even though he didn't ejaculate. I was in panic. Anyways, what's even stranger is uh, I had definitely jerked off in between that sex session when that condom fell out of me. Like, I had definitely had my fingers in my vagina. I did not feel the condom at all. So it was way up there. Okay, so then... The next week, I was having sex with another dude. This is like five days later. Different dude, different size dude, different size dick. We were doing it in a different position. And I wanted to change. He was um, fucking me from behind. So I was like, oh, I want to get on top. Uh, He pulled out and all of a sudden was like, "Uh, hold on, the condom slipped. Where is it? And we're like looking around on the ground, looking around on the bed, no condom. We're like, what the hell? Where is it? So I like touched my vagina. I didn't feel it. 
And then I reach way up in there, and it was way up in there. And so I pulled it out, and I almost said, oh, wow, this happened to me a couple of days ago with a different dude, but I didn't. And it was like my vagina is like sucking these condoms way far up there. It's like slingshotting them up. Um, anyway, so I'm going to be more careful in the future, but I just wondered have you heard of this before? Uh, I have never heard of this. It's never happened to a friend of mine. And uh, it's really crazy. My vagina maybe has teeth. Unless that first dude was fucking you in your urethra, you didn't pee out that condom. The condom fell out while you peed because the condom was presumably in your vaginal canal and not way the hell up in your urethra. Have I heard of this happening? Yes, I've heard of this happening. And it can be a problem with condoms that are too loose. That's typically why it happens. But a too loose condom on a dude, if it slips off, usually doesn't end way the hell up there. And it's not that your vagina is sucking the condoms up there. Your vagina does not have teeth. It's that the condoms are moving up the dick during penetration and then they finally come off and the guy keeps fucking and his dick is shoving the condom further up your vaginal canal after it balls up. This is a problem for some women who are particularly tight, whose vaginas have a particular angle or bend in them that creates a kind of suction during intercourse. And good problem to have, I guess, to be that kind of superpower magic type vagina thing. That's kind of an awesome problem to have. But now you have to control for it. This is a known known now about your vagina to use a Donald Rumsfeldism. It's a known known that your vagina has this ability to pull a condom off a dick. So guys need to be aware of that. You need to be aware of that. And there's a little trick that you can do, borrowing it from all the gay guys during the HIV AIDS epidemic who did it, which is while you are fucking, every once in a while, you just, without thinking, like control save when you're writing something, a hand drifts down and just feels the base of the dick to make sure the condom is still at the base of the dick and not off the dick or riding up the dick. And just he pulls out a little bit. His hand drifts down. It feels dives back in. He's pulling out a little bit. Your hand drifts down. feels he dives back in for your own safety and security and so that you don't have to spend so much fucking money on plan B. Alternately, you can go with female condoms, which I like to call them ass can liners because we've only used them for anal sex ourselves. Trash can liners, vagina liners. It's a condom that you insert into your vagina and it has a very wide and broad base. And rather than there being a condom on the dude's dick, he fucks that condom that is held in place by your powerful vagina. It can't slip off because it's already in. And it will stay there. Again, though, with that condom, you have to be careful that he doesn't pull so far out that he slides his dick alongside the female condom. If he pushes the flared end of it to the side without thinking or accidentally. So there's still some control that you have to maintain. You still have to have condom awareness, even if you are using a female condom. But while you're using male condoms, condom awareness, which means hand drifts down, check. Check every once in a while. Make sure it's still where you need it to be. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old straight female in a committed relationship with a 25-year-old straight guy. We've been together for almost five years, and everything, like we love each other so deeply, our relationship is perfect in nearly every way except for this one huge issue that's just come up. When I met him when we started going out, I would find maybe one in every 20 men 
uh, reasonably close distance in age to being attractive. But about a year and a half ago, I like my hormones kicked into overdrive, and now I want to fuck everybody I see. Like I don't know if my body's ready to get pregnant or some bullshit, and I've tried to override it for so long. Like I've read uh, Sex at Dawn, I've read Opening Up, left and around the house, talked to my boyfriend about it, and after many talks and cries and all that, we've come to an impasse. He says that price of admission for him is monogamy. And I say price of admission for me is at least trying non-monogamy once. He can't deal with this. Uh, I don't want to lose him. I don't want to lose everything we've like built up. He said that if I really can't keep my pants on, which I haven't cheated, haven't done anything, but if the opportunity arose, I might take advantage of it. He said that if I couldn't be monogamous, then we'd have to downgrade from boyfriend-girlfriend with potential marriage and babies and stuff and all that in the future to roommates with benefits, which he says that if I loved him enough, I wouldn't do that. It's not a question of love. It's just some weird animalistic desire, and I don't understand why it's bothering him so much. He said that he can see how it works for other people, but it can't work for him. And I'd like you to weigh in. Should Like, if he called, would you tell him to DTMFA? Am I the motherfucker? I I don't know what to do, and I think we're going to have to come to a decision soon. You're both the motherfuckers. How about that? We'll just split the difference there. This isn't a question of love or affection. This is a question of irreconcilable differences. Coming to terms, being on the same page about monogamy is hugely important in a long-term relationship, and you guys aren't on the same page. And you're playing a game right now of price of admission bluff chicken where his price of admission is absolute monogamy. Your price of admission is you need license or you need non-monogamy or you need some monogamishamy in your life. And so one of you has to call the question. One of you has to issue the ultimate ultimatum and say, I am going to do X. And it's really going to have to be you because right now you are defaulting monogamous because he wants monogamy. You've been monogamous up to this point. And if this really is something you can't live without, call his bluff. I'm going to do X. Now it's your move. And he says he threatened you with downgrade to roommates with benefits if you should start fucking other people, which means he imagines that even if you do start fucking other people, you're still going to live together and you're still going to have sex. So he imagines you'll still be in a relationship. So your counter chicken ass bluff calling ultimatum throwing price of admission identifying is if I have sex with other people and you, that means a downgrade for the relationship. Actually, that means the end of the relationship because I choose no relationship over roommates with benefits. So you can have me in a non-monogamous context as your girlfriend, potentially as your wife, lifelong partner, or you cannot have me at all. That's your price of admission. You got to throw that down and you got to mean it if this is indeed what you want. And you know what? It is what you fucking want. And however much you love each other right now for copacetic and wonderful everything else is, this dissatisfaction, this disconnect, this irreconcilable difference will creep and spread and poison everything else about the relationship in time. So better to hammer this out and come to some sort of agreement, even if the agreement is parting now while you're still friends and friendly, than to wait 10 years 
and two kids and then have this all explode in your faces. Hi, Dan. I'm 26, gay, um, black, um, from the Midwest. I've been struggling with something for like the last four or five years, pretty much since I've gotten over being gay. And that's the fact that like, I'm just not attracted to black men. And it just doesn't sit right with me. Like, it bothers me a lot. I go back and forth on, you know what, it's just, it just is what it is. You know, you like who you like. You can't change that. But then the other part of me feels like, like, maybe it's a thing. Like, maybe it's something I need to think about. Like, it's something, like, I feel like I maybe fetishize them or something. And by the way, I'm like, I'm very sexually submissive, by the way. So that's another part of it that kind of makes it more difficult for me for whatever reason. Like, I'll look for porn with, like, white tops, black bottoms, which is harder to find than you might think. Um, I'll even watch straight porn with white dudes, fucking black women. And that just feels icky to me. Like, it just feels like... I am putting them up on a pedestal or something. And it's so antithetical to who I am. Like I've never felt less than I've never wanted to be anything but black. Like I'm very much a black dude. Like I, most of my friends are black. I'm a nigga for lack of a better term. And so like, I feel conflicted. Like I feel like I can't talk about it with the few friends that I have. Like, I don't want to, I can't even talk about who I'm interested in, you know? Um, and I don't know. I, I, I hope you'll just tell me that I'm overthinking it and that it just it is what it is, but I seem to just keep going back and forth over it, especially within the last few years with the racial situation in America being so fucking extra tense these last couple of years. It's made me want to examine it even more. It's made me, it's made me more ashamed of it, I guess. And it's kind of put me back in the closet. Like I don't even, like I don't date, I don't really go online profiles anymore because I don't, I don't like not responding to the black people that hit me up. And you know, it's like I definitely have a type, um, and I can, I can trace it back to fucking the those damn X Men movies. Like I remember. That first one came out when I was like 11 or 12, and I remember being very interested in Hugh Jackman's hairy chest, and like that's been my type ever since, like beefy, beardy, hairy white dudes. So yeah, uh, Dan, maybe can you just help me figure out what the fuck this is all about? Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Ira Madison III, senior writer for MTV News and co-host of the MTV podcast Speed Dial, which tackles race and pop culture and is amazing and you should be listening to it. But here today, Ira is going to, with me, tackle race and sex cultures. Hey, Ira, thanks for jumping on the phone. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, It's a real pleasure. It's great to talk to you. So let's just jump right in. Is he overthinking this or is he, as I feel most people are when it comes to race and desire, perhaps underthinking it? It's a little bit of both, actually. I would say that he's underthinking it, particularly in the sense that I don't think that he is diving into all of the factors that have 
contributed to this. That have shaped his desires? Yeah. You know, he touches a bit on it with um, Hugh Jackman. Talking about <laughs> Hugh, Hugh Jackman, Jackman ruined his life. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's sort of how we become attracted to people. You know, um, people forget that it's not just how we're brought up. Mm-hmm. It's the things that we see when we're brought up. And, you know, if one of your first images when you're going through puberty is Hugh Jackman shirtless in X-Men, uh, that's who you're going to be attracted to. You know, um, I have a same sort of sexual attraction to men who look like Hugh Jackman, but, you know, I also am attracted to a variety of men, so I don't have this particular problem. But I will say that I grew up in the Midwest as well, Mm -hmm. in Wisconsin, and going to an all-boys Catholic high school sort of contributed to a lot of my, you know, sexual desires, Mm -hmm. because I grew up, um, and I'm realizing I'm gay, and I'm, you know, developing attractions to men, being surrounded by, you know, 90% white people. And it's things like that that can contribute to, you know, sort of who you're into. And I think that it's not so much that it's a problem that he's attracted to this. Um, I just think that he hasn't sort of tried to you know, break down how he could sort of approach being attracted to black men. And that's something that he really wants. And I I think that's exactly it. You know, he says you like who you like and you can't change that. But then there's what you're taught to like by the culture and the images that are laid in front of you. You think of the study where little African-American girls are given the choice between playing with a white doll or playing with a a, a black doll and they choose the white doll at three. Mm Mm-hmm. And so this is of a piece with that in a way, or they can't be separated from this necessarily, but you, you have to interrogate, if I may use that buzzword, college style, you have to interrogate your desires to make sure they're actually yours. Because if legitimately, like, this is your type and it's pretty locked in and pretty solid, after you interrogate it, okay, you can live with that and you can roll with that. But a lot of people arrive at young adulthood, and he says he only came out pretty recently, he's only 26 years old, still relatively young thinking that what it is that they want is what they want, but actually they want what they've been taught to want. And if they sit with that for a little bit and think about it for a little bit, maybe you want more than just guys with dagger knuckles or whatever it was about Hugh Jackman besides his chest that attracted him in (laughs) X-Men. Maybe you have more expansive taste than you are capable of realizing right now. I I know if I can use an example of my own life, like I locked on at a similar age – um, to you and the Catholic boys in your Catholic high school and uh, the caller and Hugh Jackman and X-Men, I locked on to like Andy Gibb and Leif Garrett and Sean Cassidy. That's how long ago I was 11 years old. Like all these shaggy haired white boys on the TV. You're not really like alive if you're not attracted to Andy Gibb. However, <laughs> I, I completely I agree am, with you there, but it took I me until my late, mid, it took me until my mid late twenties to go, Oh wait, I'm not only attracted to shaggy haired white guys. Not only attracted to guys with shaggy hair and not only attracted to white guys, but it took me time to like realize to, to walk that back and to and to interrogate my own desires and to see and, and to free myself from this thing that was partially, honestly, actually attractive. Andy Gibb, Sean Cassidy, 
Lake Garrett, not so much when you look back, but whatever. But, <laughs> but not the only thing that was attractive. Yeah. Um, and, and what's actually hard is being black at the same time, you know, because I feel like it's different for, you know, white people who will, you know, say that they're not attracted to a certain race and then, you know, sort of what they have interactions with other people of those races, they can sort of, you know, attack why they've mm-hmm. only been attracted to white people. But, you know, as a black person, you not only have this attraction to white people that's sort of pushed on you in society and the media, there's also, you know, colorism issues within our own community, you know, hearkening back to, you know, slavery and leaving that, um, you know, just the migration of black people towards the North, it's always largely in society been sort of easier to be a lighter skinned black person. Mm -hmm. Um, And you see that even in the media, you're more likely to find uh, lighter skinned black actors getting work, Mm -hmm. even in roles that may call for a darker skinned actor. And when you even have those factors going on within your own community, it's harder to be attracted to blackness. So what does he do about it? What does he do with it? He says he feels icky. He says, and do you think this is antithetical to who he is as a proud black gay man? Can he both be that and be open and honest with his friends and himself about being exclusively attracted to white guys? If indeed he is exclusively attracted to white guys. I mean, the first thing I would tell him to do is talk to his damn friends. <laughs> I have black friends in Los Angeles who are primarily, you know, attracted to white men. And it's, you know, it's not an issue. You know, it's something that we will sometimes make fun of them for. <laughs> um, but they also realize that's a thing about them, mm-hmm. you know, and they can step outside of themselves and sort of make fun of it too. Um, There's ways to also, you know, just sort of address it. If you're with your friends, your friends might've gone through the same thing, you know, and they can sort of address what it is that may be attracting you to white people. You know, if you expand the conversations that you're having with your black friends. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a way that you can sort of tap into this and talk about it openly. You know, I think part of the problem is saying that he's feeling like he's going back into the closet because of this issue. It's not an issue that should keep him, you know, from expressing his sexual desires or talking with his friends about sex. I mean, how many movies are there about straight black men um, and their attractions to white women? You know, Spike Lee's made them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about it in the black community. We joke about it with people like Nick Young and his like recent relationship with Iggy Azalea. So, you know, it's like, it's not like it's unheard of. Okay. So uh, just a, a, a quick question. Is it okay for someone to say, you know, my desires, the kinds of people I'm attracted to, I can identify that those desires were shaped by racist imagery, a, a racist culture, racist beauty ideals. And yet there's really nothing I can do about it. It is what it is. 
I'm going to be open about it and honest about it and acknowledge the racism that may have played a role in shaping my desires, but what can I do? Is that enough to just own it in that way and move on? Can you acknowledge that what racism, how that racism impacted your sexual desires without having then to undo them or remake them? I mean, you can, but then I don't think you can really get mad at white people for being racist. <laughs> There's this weird instance of what I found in interrogating black men who are largely attracted to only white men. I agree that there's, you know, racism in the gay community. However, I'm less prone to, you know, be on the side of people who talk about, you know, racism on Grindr and like dating apps and things like that. Because if you know that white people can be racist and you're largely going after white people, but excluding people of other races, then you sort of don't have a leg to stand on, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that he, in dating only white men, has probably experienced white men who say that they're not attracted to him because he's black. You know, and if he's ever felt, like, hurt by that, or if he's ever felt like if they got to know him or had sex with more black people, they could be into him, mm -hmm. then, you know, he needs to interrogate that about himself. Right. And own that he's part of the problem in a way or contributing to the problem or a, a facet of it. And oh man, you know, he's at least a facet of it. And, and if you can accept that, but you can't change that, how do you move through life without doing more damage? How do you make amends for that? What's the penance there that allows you to continue to sin if it is indeed a sin or a falling or failing? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's particularly a sin, but, you know, as long as you as a black person find a way to make sure that this is only in your sexual life, mm. you know, you're, you know, if you're at least like caring about black lives and doing you know, all that you can to not have black people sort of erased from the conversation within the gay community at large, then do whatever you want, I guess. You know, I'm not going to judge you for sleeping with who you want to sleep with um, because white people will always do the same anyway. But you just can't sort of say, like, you're helpless without trying to find out why you feel that way. I will say, however, that I do get where he's coming from when it comes to trying to find porn to watch. You know, just because that's another problem, you know, inherent in just gay porn. It's particularly hard to find black men in it in general. And it's harder as well for him probably to find, you know, submissive black men in gay porn. And how does that factor into it? Like, it's not just that he's attracted to white men, the dominant culture, the dominant race, the racist shitbags, white men, but also desires to, in those sexual interactions, be submissive to those white men. Is that an added zap on the head? And there are plenty of people who have those desires around submission who aren't black, who where there isn't going to be kind of a default racial analysis that could be applied, uh -huh. who can do it in be fine with it and not feel terrible about it but what how does that impact his desires and what does he do about that element yeah i mean that one 
is hard too because you know there actually are a lot of white men who are attracted mainly to black men and they're you know in the submissive position you know because historically you know it's sort of easier to fall into that myth you know you know of the the black you know sort of mandingo othello whatever who will fuck you Mm -hmm. um but it's harder to find the reverse of that unless you end up watching like some really like creepy or pseudo racist porn. So, I mean, that one, I really don't know much of an answer for that one, you know, because I mean, that involves changing the porn industry, you know, and the gay porn industry has been sort of the same since its induction, which is also a contributing factor. You know, you're not just coming out and being attracted to the men around you when you're gay, you're coming out and, you know, looking at other men having sex in the media. Mm -hmm. And if that's not in TV shows and movies, um, it certainly wasn't when I was growing up, um, you look to porn and what do you see? You know, it's largely white men having sex with each other Mm -hmm. or, you know, dominating sort of an Asian man um, or being dominated by a black man. You know, these are the stereotypes that we get stuck with. And those are also contributing factors to who you're attracted to. In a way, you could look at his submissive desires and see them not as playing into the dominant culture and its attitudes around gay black men and their role as portrayed in porn where the gay black man is almost always the dominant, but in a way transgressing against that racist stereotype. So it's sort of double reverse Mm -hmm. backflip, turn it on its head, transgression, anti-racism desire in that submissive impulse. He could understand it that way and give himself Mm -hmm. a little bit of a break. I mean, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to desire, when it comes to who and what, who you're attracted to, what you want to do at some point, you've got to love yourself, accept yourself and give yourself a fucking break after interrogating after examining after thinking about who you are sexually what you want sexually at some point you have to lean in to borrow cheryl stanberg's phrase and just (laughs) be you which includes like like you said ira like talking with your friends about it being a little bit more open about it not carrying around so much shame about it yeah i mean don't care about like what society at large thinks about you i mean i in no way love my black friends who date a majority of white men less than, you know, I like my other black friends, you know, Mm -hmm. you may point that out to them when they put up a Facebook photo of being at fire Island with 20 hot gay guys in it. And they're the only black one in it. Uh, you will make a joke about it to them then, but, you know that you're not also going to judge them for who they sleep with, you know? And when they're in a relationship, you're not going to be like, you know, I wish that you were dating a black guy, you know? It's Mm -hmm. not that serious anymore. We shouldn't be attacking each other for these issues. I'm saying that if he mentally has a problem with it, he needs to be talking about it more openly instead of going inward with it and sort of shaming himself. But if he reaches that conclusion that he just wants to, you know, 
be submissive to white men, then then do it. Date a Hugh Jackman and marry a Hugh Jackman. You know, because once you are with someone anyway, like, what's the point? You know, like I could be largely attracted to only black men. But if I meet and fall in love with a white guy, then, you know, it's not like I'm going to discard in that relationship because I'm like, I should be with a black person, you know? Ira Madison the third. Is that how you like to say your name? Ira Madison the third? It is, you know, okay. I feel like Robert Downey gets his junior, so you get your third. Ira Madison the third, senior writer for MTV News, co-host of the MTV podcast Speed Dial, which tackles race and pop culture. You should be listening to it. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. It was really great talking to you. Yeah, thank you. Hi, Dan. Uh, 40-year-old by poly male living in the Bay Area. I have a question about repairing a relationship after I've totally fucked up. A girlfriend of mine who lives in the Midwest recently came out for a vacation. Uh, she and I and my primary partner, who I live with, went up to Napa, had a great time. However, the next day, my primary partner called me out for not disclosing that I likely have HPV. Um, I don't have the cancer-causing strain, as far as I can tell, but a side note, they don't even test or vaccinate men my age. Uh, Once I told her, my friend of 20 years says she never wants to speak to me again. I'm respectful of, of that and not talking to her, though I've talked to other mutual friends make sure she's okay. Luckily, one of them is a medical professional and uh, got her to calm down about everything. But I own up to being an asshole through omission. So I'm not looking for absolution, but rather two things. How, if I can make this right, and given that I will never make this mistake again, how do I talk about it with new potential partners without completely scaring them off? I'm trying to wrap my head around, first of all, why you're still with your primary partner who didn't encourage you to disclose your HPV infection to your new secondary partner, but who outed you in front of your new secondary partner as having had HPV and committed the sin of but not commission, but omission and not disclosing that to her yourself proactively sooner instead of telling you, you needed to inform her of that and then deal with the consequences. She outed you in kind of an unfair and gross and seems to me bullying way. And I would encourage you to get the fuck away from that person. I don't think I would stay along with someone who did that to me. And my advice is colored in part by the disease we're talking about here, which is, HPV, which I'm sorry, as 40-something sexually active adults with multiple partners, you all have. This woman already has been exposed to. I don't think when it comes to HPV, we are required to disclose what we should just assume everybody either knows they have or has already been exposed to and has and doesn't know that they have, which is HPV. Skin-to-skin contact insanely prevalent. Most people have been exposed to it. Most people who have it are asymptomatic and don't know they have it. So you're being punished by this woman 
who never wants to speak to you again after 20 years of friendship or whatever the fuck it was for telling her something about yourself that she should have already assumed to be true about you, Mr. Polyamory with multiple partners and something she should have assumed was already true about herself. Mrs. Poly triad in relationships with people with multiple partners that she has HPV or has been exposed to HPV. Everybody go get the vaccine, get your kids vaccinated young. The vaccines really fucking work and they can eradicate this. But your big colossal relationship destroying disclosure here. I listened to your call and I was just like, what the fuck? There's actually a show I think that you should listen to and maybe send the link to your now ex-friend, ex-lover. It's Fresh Air last week. Jesse Klein being interviewed by the amazing and awesome Terry Gross, and she's talking about a sketch she wrote for Inside Amy Schumer about a herpes scare, about a young woman who gets herpes. And in the sketch, the woman gets herpes, woman played by Amy Schumer. So vapid, selfish, spoiled, suburban brat of a person gets herpes and has to deal with the fallout, which includes a long and hilarious conversation with God, played by Paul Giamatti. And then at the end of this conversation about this sketch that grew out of Jesse Klein's own herpes scare, she Gets on the record. She blurts out, I, I didn't end up having herpes myself. She wanted that out there. That had to be very clear. Didn't actually have herpes. Later in the same interview, HPV comes up. And she's just like, oh, yeah, I have it. Amy has it. Everybody has it. Amy talked about it in a stand-up. But, of course, I have HPV. Everybody has HPV. It's the biggest non-issue. And this is somebody who was stressing out about contracting herpes, careful to make sure that all those listeners at home Knew that she didn't end up actually having herpes, unlike the girl in the skit that she wrote about her own experience. But HPV, whatever, of course, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Not a big deal. Keep an eye on it. Get your pap smears, get your checkups. If you're young, get vaccinated. If you have kids, get them vaccinated. But HPV, not a big deal. Also, the price of admission for the kind of sex life that you and your multiple partners have. If you can't deal, if you can't deal with HPV, you are not cut out for non-monogamy. If you can't deal with HPV, you are not cut out for a sexual relationship at all because the odds that you will end up with somebody in a monogamous commitment who already has HPV or that you already have HPV by the time you get to that monogamous commitment are really fucking high. So I think you're well rid of this woman who freaked the fuck out about this big fat nothing of a sexually transmitted infection. And I think you should get rid of your primary, who sounds like a terrible person. Hi, Dan. I'm trying to figure something out, understand something, and understand if I'm kind of off base. I have a 17-year-old daughter, and she has a friend who will be visiting us later in the summer. This friend prefers the pronouns they, them, and they have what usually is considered a guy name, and they have an appearance of what one would say is traditionally male. I know that there's a romantic interest between the two of them. And my daughter, she's 17. The friend is, I don't know, freshman or something in college. My daughter wants to know if they can stay in her room. She said she likes to cuddle. She does have sex. She has good birth control. So. I'm not worried about her getting pregnant. The two bedrooms, her bedroom is upstairs. The other room is upstairs. And my first inclination is to have them stay in them being her friend, have them stay in the other bedroom. But of course, they're right next to each other. 
There's nothing to keep the two of them apart. I feel really uncomfortable or strange because I don't want to support my daughter having sex in the in the sense that I don't want to say, sure, free for all, doesn't matter, which I kind of feel like if I say the two of them can share her bed, that's what is going on, even though I fully understand there could be sneaking around. So I'm a little confused about that. And the confusion here, I guess, is I assume they have a penis, but I don't know. And that may not be the case. And there could be something there. The person could have a vagina. The person could have something in between. I have no idea. And I'm sorry. I keep saying the person. I mean, they. The weird thing is, if I thought they had a vagina, I feel differently. I wouldn't feel as skittish about having the two of them share a room. So I'm kind of weirded out in a way. It's like I have a penis bias. And I don't care who the penis is attached to in terms of identity and preferences, any of that. My daughter says I'm trans biased. I don't know where her friend leans or is interested. I understand that's private. My daughter says it's none of my business. I get it. I just, and I finally told her, I said, you know, okay, my husband and I agreed. They can share a room because otherwise it's kind of bullshit, the idea that, no, you share one room and you have the other room. And, you know, there's the realities of people doing whatever they want. I just don't understand my little bias against a penis since I know the odds of her getting pregnant are slim to none. And I, we already said, sure, they can stay with you in your room. But I still have this part of me that keeps saying, as a parent, my duty is to do whatever I can to ensure my daughter isn't having sex even though I fully support her having birth control. So I feel like I'm like a hamster going round and round. A few months ago, I gave a talk in San Francisco. And before the talk, I had sort of a small group meeting with some teenagers from the youth group associated with the organization that brought me in and had an interesting exchange with this young woman who was annoyed that her parents were so much more obsessively worried about her physical safety as she began to date than they ever had been about her brothers. She had older brothers and her parents weren't hovering and they weren't minding and they weren't as concerned. And she thought this was a sexist double standard. And I sat there and scratched my head and then opened my mouth and got myself into trouble, which is what I do for a living. Because as a parent, I could certainly understand why her parents would be more concerned about her safety as she moved into dating because she was, a young woman who was dating men. And we are, on the one hand, hyper-conscious, as we should be increasingly, of intimate partner violence, of rape, of date rape, of coercion, of blurry consent, of all the shitty things that men do. Louis C.K. has this great routine. <laughs> jokes about how amazing it is that women will even talk to men, considering that the leading cause of death for women is men. That a woman going on a date with a man, Louis C.K. says, and I'm not doing the bit justice and you should Google it and look it up, is like a woman going on a date with a bear. Gosh, I hope he doesn't eat me this time or this one doesn't eat me. So, yeah, as a parent, I could understand if, you know, if I had a daughter and she was moving into dating, I would be more concerned for her safety and welfare than if I had a son who was moving into dating. As the parent of a son, what I was really hypervigilant about with my son was to make sure that he was a safe person for other young people for young women to date to try to control for 
what the culture encouraged him to believe that he was entitled to or what testosterone does to the brain, right? To try to get in between that. So your concerns, caller, about your daughter and whether her agender friend has a penis and factoring that penis into your concerns and being more concerned than you might be if her agender friend had a vagina seems to me perfectly rational because of violence, because of how awful male-bodied people can be, whether they're agender or not, to the women that they are with or pursuing or wanting. Sometimes it feels like half the calls we get are from women who are being abused, if not physically, sometimes just emotionally, socially, by the men that they who want them and can't have them. And also pregnancy and disease. Pregnancy likelier to impact your daughter's life than this person's life if they have a penis. Sexually transmitted infections pass from male-bodied persons to female-bodied persons more efficiently and easily. Your daughter's at risk for more than her agender friend might be at risk for in this arrangement. And so your concern isn't a sexist double standard. And for fuck's sake, there's nothing trans fucking phobic about it or agender phobic about it or phobic about it at all. You're being phobic, fearful about anything here. You're being fearful about things that as a parent and a woman, you're rational to be slightly phobic about or concerned about or want to control for. All that said, I think you're making the right call, letting them come to your house and letting them stay with your daughter in your daughter's room. If that's the choice that your daughter wants to make, make sure the guest room is available to that person. Make sure the guest room is available to them and they have a place to unpack and another room to spread out in. But look to the Dutch, the Dutch allow the partners of their teenage children to have sleepovers, to have intercourse better in the house than sneaking around better. Your daughter have you there in her home at this time than if your daughter went and what she's 17, almost an adult TikTok. The months are flying by, right? Better than your daughter spending the weekend with them in some shitty hotel because they couldn't come and stay at your house better this way. But your daughter needs to chill the fuck out. Of course you're more concerned if this person is a penis haver because there are certain emotional, social, and sexual dynamics that come bundled with that penis having thing. Not in all cases, but in enough cases that you're right to be concerned and right to set the bar a little higher and right to want to control for it to whatever extent you can as a loving parent to someone who is still a minor and still living in your house. If anything else, just they knowing that this person that they're coming to see, your daughter, has vigilant and concerned parents who will be present, that all by itself is a good thing that increases the likelihood that your daughter will be safe with them. You're not doing anything wrong. You're doing it right. Don't let your daughter's bullshit charges of transphobia stay your hand or shut your mouth. Hi, Dan. This is for the lady who has the crazy ex leaving stuff everywhere with the parent, the co-parenting dog thing going on. I can say that I've been on the other side of that. I was the ex. 
Um, we did have a dog together, and I know it sounds stupid, but honestly, that was my excuse to kind of stay in my ex's life. And he was the type that wanted to keep me in his life, but also wanted a new girlfriend. Very manipulative. I was kind of manipulative with it, too. It's a long story, but we're past it and I've grown. But I will say to her, if he isn't saying anything, like you said, then there's a problem. I hope she figures it out and finds the strength to either say no or confront him about it. So all the people who are thinking of voting for Jill Stein because she's, quote, the best person for the job, why not think bigger? I mean, you're breaking free of the two-party system to vote for the candidate of your dreams, and all you can come up with is Jill Stein? Why not vote for the greatest politician ever, the man who steered us to the scariest conflict of the 20th century and who is responsible for the modern social state? I am speaking, of course, of FDR. Now, you may say that's absurd. FDR is dead, and he has a 0% chance of getting elected. But Jill Stein only has a 0.1 chance of getting elected. So there's only a 0.1% difference between them. Why let a 0.1% difference get in the way of voting for the best candidate? Why would you vote for somebody who's not as qualified just because she's slightly more electable because she happens to be alive? After all, aren't your principles more important than real-world considerations? Vote for the best possible candidate and accept nothing less. Vote FDR. Hi, Dan. This is a comment about your last show about the guy who's wondering who's going to take care of him in his old age if he doesn't have kids. Listen, the money he'll save on not having kids, he can afford a really cute nurse to take care of him and change all the diapers he wants. Kids are majorly expensive. He doesn't have kids, he'll have plenty of money to hire whoever he wants. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Ira Madison III on Twitter at Ira. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.